Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. The common image that comes to mind of underage youths serving in the Civil War is that of innocent drummer boys or the heroic cadets of VMI at Newmarket. But in a boldly challenging new book, Professors Rebecca Joe Plant and Francis Clark suggest that the question of the age of consent was far more important than historians have recognized, influencing everything from the definition of childhood to the nature of parental rights, the relationship of states to the federal government, the suspension of habeas corpus, and many other things. We'll talk with the authors of the book Of Age, Boy Soldiers and Military Power in the Civil War Era. And we'll do that tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P- O W I C Z G at ECU dot EDU. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you tonight from the third floor of the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University. Office A320, if you're in the neighborhood, come and knock on my door. Doesn't matter if it's office hours, I'm often here and always happy to talk. Uh, but not talking on behalf of ECU, <clears throat> not representing the university, speaking just for myself. Likewise, my guests will speak only for themselves, not their institutions. Uh, don't sue us, sue them, or something like that. Um, well, it is the third week of February 2023 as we talk with you tonight, and uh, we're approaching spring break. Indeed, this will be the last live show here before uh, spring break. Normally, I don't do a, sh- a show that week. I might be traveling or I might just be needing uh, the time off. And this year, taking two weeks from Civil War Talk Radio to recover uh, from the ongoing uh, semester. The most interesting thing that's been happening here on campus, and it may be happening in the neighborhood you live in, depending what kind of place you live in, is the advent of robot food service. Um, if you haven't seen these uh, in, in your neighborhood or on your campus, these little uh, uh, little carts, uh, uh, I don't know, what are they, the size of a, a, a cooler, like you, you 
carried to the beach, but they have wheels and lights on, and they drive by themselves along the sidewalk, and they take food from food service to whoever has ordered it in their classroom building or residence hall, whatever. And they're just the cutest things. They they just they line up at stoplights and they wait for the light to change, even if no cars are coming, because they're they're robots. And then they cross the street and they go on their way. They don't go very fast. And by the time they get where they're going, I guess I hope you weren't too hungry because it takes they're not it takes them a while. But they're they're uh, they're adorable. And if if you're my age, you remember that we were promised there would be jetpacks by the time we were grown up. Uh, for us to fly around in, and none of that has happened. But now, at least we do have the robots for food delivery. Unfortunately, there was also a news story the other day that some students have started vandalizing them. One got thrown into the creek nearby, uh, proving once again uh, you we cannot have nice things. Uh, fortunately, most students at ECU are, are better than that. The ones uh, in history 3225, uh, and and if you're listening to this, which you should be, because tonight's book is an important one, uh, if you're in the Civil War class, uh, the first midterm, uh, the midterm exam was pretty good, and uh, we'll go over those in class tomorrow. But more important, uh, on Friday this week, I'm taking the class to the Newburn battlefield, which we haven't done since before the pandemic. Indeed, it was the very last thing we did on a Friday. Uh, and that weekend in 2019, and that weekend everything shut down. Uh, haven't been back. So I went back this weekend, uh, did a scouting trip uh, to New Bern. It's half an hour, 45 minutes away, and was really impressed that they have expanded the, the walking paths there and signage from what it was like in 2019 on my last visit. So if you're in eastern North Carolina, do yourself a favor and, and go to the Newburn Battlefield Park. It's uh, just an outdoor area. There's no, uh, no no shop or library or store or anything or museum or anything, but uh, it's, it's quite well done and they, they keep expanding it. So looking forward to that this, this week. And also looking forward to baseball season. ECU baseball is back. Scored 43 runs in three games this weekend. Then they went around and turned around and lost uh, to Campbell, of all people, uh, in extra innings yesterday. But uh, baseball is, as if you listen to this show, uh, you've heard me talk about it, it is ECU's best uh, sport. And, and as a dedicated bandwagoner, I always like to follow teams that are winning. Uh, you can win by listening to this show, as, as you're already doing, and by finding out who's going to be on next, go to www.impedimentsofwar.org. Mark Gaffney is the webmaster there. He will be putting up lists of who's going to be on the show next as soon as I supply him with that information. We've got a half a season to go here uh, after spring break in March. We'll have shows right through June. And you can also donate to the show while you're there. Click the PayPal button, tell them how much, then add another zero, and click, and that will send money directly to Civil War Talk Radio. Uh, a special opportunity right now, I should point out, is that donating to Civil War Talk Radio is a great inflation hedge because uh, a year from now, if you just put your money under the mattress, it will be worth you know, some percent less, three, four, five, six percent. We don't know what inflation will be, but it won't be worth as much as it is today. If you give it to me, on the other hand, 
you will have a sense of satisfaction of helping support the show that will continue to last into the new year. Uh, no matter how much inflation grows, your, your self-satisfaction will remain constant. Uh, and conversely, your guilt, if you have been freeloading all this time and not donating to the show, uh, will inflate grotesquely over the same period. So uh, do donate to the show. It helps buy books or other supplies. I, I could order food service to a robot and have it brought to the Brewster building with your donation. Uh, if you listen to a year's worth of shows, 60 shows, and donate $25, that's under 50 cents a show. You can't buy anything under 50 cents. Uh, so do consider doing that. Um, but whatever you do, don't deduct it on your taxes. Not tax deductible, not a nonprofit organization, just a self-interested organization. Uh, it's all for me, 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 me. Uh, you cannot deduct it. So I've there. there's... That is not actual formal legal advice. Um, I don't want to get in trouble for that, but but don't deduct it. Trust me. What you also can do is learn about the phenomenon of underage uh, or almost underage soldiers serving in the American Civil War. This was uh, it's a topic of a book called Of Age: Boy Soldiers and Military Power in the Civil War Era, and when I first received notice of this book from uh, the, the publisher, uh, saw the title. My first thought was, man, this, this sounds like a dissertation. Somebody's looking for a new topic. You know, what hasn't been written on? You know, James Martin's already written about children in the Civil War, but maybe we'll specialize just Union soldiers. It is somebody trying to slice the, the, the pie even thinner. Uh, and then I look, and there's two authors, so it's not a dissertation book, clearly, because uh, that would only have one author. And then this week, when I actually read the book, I discover it's four or five books worth of new provocative ideas about the Civil War and in, in directions uh, I had not thought about before, and you probably have not either. So let's talk with the authors tonight and find out uh, how this book came about and what it has to tell us. Uh, welcome to uh, Francis M. Clark and Rebecca Joe Plant. Uh, Doctors Clark and Plant, are you there? We are. Thank you. Um, thank you for that introduction, Jerry. We're really honoured to be on your show, and well, well, you know it's delightful to talk about um, to talk to a Civil War um, program in particular. Well, ha happy to have you on the show. Um, since we have not met officially, I have to refresh my memory. I, I hear a bit a faint accent uh, Australian perhaps I am Australian and I'm wondering when the food robots are going to get to Australia I think well, it might take a while it, at the rate they go they're very slow it'd be some years but uh, but technologically speaking I hope, hope you do get them soon um, so that will help me then I will remember uh, Francis that you you are associate professor at University of Sydney and Rebecca, you're at University of California, San Diego. I'm looking at the dust jacket so I can keep everybody straight here. Um, let me ask first a quick process question. How how do you collaborate on a book like this? It's it's most history books we all know are single author projects. Uh, how how do you co-author a book? Uh, from two from two far away locations too. Rebecca, yes. do you want to start us off with? Sure. 
Yeah, uh, this um, was not initially on my radar to co-author a book, but Francis and I went to graduate school together at Johns Hopkins, and we have ever since then read everything the other one wrote, um, from book chapters to book reviews, and we uh, knew that we had a very similar sensibility, that we were interested in the same kinds of questions, and that we had even a similar literary style. So I knew that if there was anybody that I could collaborate with on a book, it would in fact be Francis. And for me, the major hurdle to overcome was simply uh, the notion that I, as someone who started researching the 20th century, could take on this mountain of scholarship, of Civil War scholarship, and move back into the 19th century. But she convinced me with the help of some very intriguing sources from the National Archives that um, definitely seized my imagination. And they were basically letters that parents had written to um, uh, Lincoln or to the Secretary of War, to the federal government, um, asking for the discharge of their underage sons. And she knew that I was very interested uh, in the history of family relationships. And so she lured me in and we um, I, we applied for grants. We were very fortunate in getting um, both support from the Australian government through an ARC grant and also um, through the ACLS collaborative grant, which allowed me to move to Australia. I don't think we could have written this book without some, uh, without actually being in the same place at the beginning. But mm -hmm. after yeah. the begin, after we got things off the ground, we relied very heavily on Dropbox and, uh, you know, just the wonders of electronic communication, and that worked. But at the beginning, it was one of us sitting on the couch with the computer, and the other one pacing around trying to articulate our ideas and arguments. So that that period in Sydney, when we were first together and wrote a, a paper that was published. Um, in um, the uh, legal uh, historical review. Uh, did I get that right? <laughs> anyway, um, yeah. Yeah, that legal history review, that, um, or review of legal history, that that was, um, that was critical to, to launching us. So, so is, does one person write a draft of a chapter, the other one starts marking it up or? or uh... Uh, are some chapters yours and some uh, the others? I would say no, actually. This is um, mm -hmm. Francis. Now. Yes. I mean, you know, we, we've we gone over. So somebody might do a chunk and then someone mm -hmm. else might, you know, one of us will take that chunk and, and rewrite it. And we've actually had a number of different iterations of writing together. You know, sometimes we'll be on Zoom together for a whole day and, you know, we'll be um, nutting things out. Other times someone will take a part of a chapter away and work on it and then they'll give it to the other person. But honestly, we've gone over each other's prose now so that so much that it's hard for me to remember who wrote what. Um, yes. You know, like, <laughs> we can really do that, you know, with two people who are very um, sympathetic with each other, I guess. I, I imagine I would have been tearing out my hair if I was, you know, if it was anybody else I tried to write this book with. 
I, I can imagine that would be a, a challenge. We have just a couple of minutes till the first break, so let's get a, a ground-level question here. When we talk about underage soldiers in the Civil War, you point out there was a myth before World War One that there were as many as a million such boys, and then it got debunked down to tiny fraction of that. Where does it stand now? How, how many people are we talking about? Uh, well, about ten or eleven percent, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, of of the of both sides of of. Well, we uh, were not able to really, um, you know, make a uh, accurate estimate for the Confederate side simply because the records aren't as viable. Um, but mm-hmm. for the Union side, we are quite confident in saying ten, eleven percent. So that's that's in the neighborhood of two hundred thousand. Correct. Yes. Wow. So so this is a substantial number of of people that we're talking about, and and by underage, let's let's also get the parameters. Is this does that mean under sixteen, under eighteen, under twenty one? At this time, under eight. <laughs> I, I, we should go every other turn since we can't see each other. So I, I should be running the show and telling yeah, you who I'm talking sorry to. Sorry about that. Uh, uh, so, Francis, get, I'll tell you what. I'm going to take a break right now. We'll step aside for a minute. Uh, we will we will organize ourselves in a military yes. fashion and, and get this to uh, uh Uh, so that we're all all on the same page. Uh, The pages are of the book called Of Age, Boy Soldiers and Military Power in the Civil War Era. It's written by Francis M. Clark and Rebecca Jo Plant, who are guests tonight here on Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on The Voice America Variety Channel. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. 
And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Francis M. Clark and Rebecca Joe Plant, authors of Of Age, Boy Soldiers and Military Power in the Civil War Era. One of the many fascinating discussions in this book is of, of the definition of childhood itself. Today, young men register in the United States for selective service when they turn 18. Uh, they can vote at 18. Uh, in many states, however, they cannot drink alcohol till they're 21. Uh, was there a was there a date, uh, an age of manhood in the Civil War in the same sense? Okay. Yes. So, 21 was a real significant marker, both um, in terms of that was when men achieved their legal majority. Uh, they literally came of age. Um, mm-hmm. But that but that did not line up with the military age. So that right there created tensions. But um, I think what we show and what was so interesting in terms of researching this subject was that um, although people receive sort of the benefits of adulthood at a later date in life. Um, They were burdened with a lot of the responsibilities that we would today associate with adulthood at a much earlier age. So they were used to helping out families. Um, They were used to earning money. They were used to doing, you know, sometimes quite dangerous work, work that required them to be very independent spirited and um, even brave, you could say, um, on their own at a, at a surprisingly young age. And so we argue that various things within the culture at large, including the um, treatment of children and youth, uh, sort of prime the ground for this mass underage enlistment that we see in the Civil War. So, uh, Francis, you start your book, not with the Civil War, but the War of 1812, uh, and pointing out that there's an argument that early in American history about whether young men below the age of 21 should serve in the military, uh, especially if they didn't have their parents' permission. what were the political ramifications of that argument? Why, why was it such a, a fraught issue? Right. Well, I mean, maybe just to step back a little bit, um, mm-hmm. the, one, one of the reasons that uh, parents are, are so resistant to having their sons uh, serve in, a, in the U.S. military is that is that they're making a very um, profound distinction in in the early um, Republican era between militia service and service in the regulars. So, of course, when the US is formed, it's formed with a dual military system. It has quite purposefully, because there's a lot of fear about standing armies, so they create this militia system, and, and it's, you know, very different from service in the regulars. So, you know, in the militia tradition... Initially, you know, you're only serving for a few months. You know, the militia service starts when you're when a boy is 18, uh, but it's local, so you're only, you know, supposedly training or whatever in your local area, and that is one kind of military service. But it it did not affect the parent-child relationship in any way. So if you go and train for three months, 
or if you sorry if you even if you get called up as a as a militiaman you're only ever going to be called up for three months at a time if you enlist in the regulars you're going to have to sign a five-year contract you will um, be subject to harsh discipline you know you'll uh you won't be able to elect your officers um etc and you will be essentially emancipated from parental control is the the language that they used. So once you sign that enlistment contract with the regulars, you are no longer um, beholden to your parents, if you like, inle- except perhaps morally. But, you know, you don't have to give them your wages. So, you know, the distinction that people are making in the first half of the 19th century, they have no problem sending a child off to serve in the militia because the arguments that they're making are not about the... the, uh, the, the viability or morality or whatever of sending a young person into a military situation that's not the argument the argument is about parental rights and so you know when the war of 1812 is fought and people are saying well we need to you know enlist all of the 18 year olds parents are up in arms because they're making this distinction between like yes a boy can serve in the militia but we do not want him serving in the regular in the regulars because that means we lose out on those crucial years of his you know, service to the family between 18 and 21. Does that make sense? It, it does. It, the This distinction between militia and regulars and then the in-between status of volunteers uh, uh, is, is a thread throughout American military history in the 19th century. Uh, and I, I teach it when I'm teaching American military history, but I had never focused until reading this book on uh, that, that crucial age gap uh, that an 18-year-old, as you say, serving in the local militia, uh, that's part of universal service. Every adult male does that. But all that entails is if there's no war on, you just have a once a year show up on the village green, get drunk, march around, go home. Uh, everyone can do that, and, and you're proud to do that. But if it's a war and you're being sent into Canada, most listeners know of all the American militia units in 1812 that refused to go into Canada – because that wasn't what militia did. They defended the home. They didn't invade other countries. Uh, whereas the government, the officers, you know, will argue, well, no, you're in our, you're in my unit. You'll go where I tell you. Uh, so you've got these two different systems at work. Uh, I was fascinated to read that Connecticut and Massachusetts attempted to nullify federal age laws during the uh, War of 1812. Uh, right. Which is they, South Carolina nullify. Yes. They, they so, passed laws that actually were at odds with federal law, and uh, were very clear about feeling that um, they, you know, legally had the wherewithal to enforce that. And part of that has to do with the the notion that. Um, the vertical relationship between the federal government and the states had not been so firmly established. Uh, and that goes, that goes uh, to, that holds true also for what we talk about with the court system as well. Uh, um, Francis, let me get back to another question about children. You, you made the point that, that today we, we think of child soldiers with abhorrence the idea of sending an innocent child into a life-threatening situation is is, is not acceptable. Uh, you have a very interesting chapter in the book about the inappropriateness of young men serving, not because it's immoral to send a child into combat, but because young men, even 
even in their early 20s, were not physically mature enough to serve. That's, where did that idea come from? Um, so the, the origins of this project um, were, you know, we were looking at all these letters that parents had sent in to the Adjutant General during, during the Civil War. That's, that's the sources that we started with. And I was really fascinated by these because, um, you know, they when parents are asking for their, you know, they're making claims about why they must have their children back and or their young men. And the claims that they made were not the ones that we were expecting, that we would have anticipated finding. We might have anticipated that parents would say, I need my, my child back because war isn't an appropriate place for the young or I need my child back because, you know, I don't want them being traumatised by the sights and sounds of war. Instead, they made these arguments about the, the physical capabilities of young men in their, you know, before that they were in their early 20s. And so I started wondering, you know, about these um, medical claims, really. And um, start. I started trying to find out um, when... Uh, this was actually the first chapter that we um, that we wrote in the book. I was trying to figure out um, where age restrictions came from. And so I was reading all of these rec recruitment manuals, like the first ever recruitment manuals or manuals basically written for army recruiters. And uh, so I um, got all of those for the sort of first half of the 19th century. They're mostly coming out of Britain and, you know, I was looking at the way these recruiters talked about age and I noticed in 1850 there's these, you know, the first few recruiters' manuals, they're, they're basically saying, oh, you can't tell a 19 from a 21-year-old, you just have to make your best guess and it doesn't really matter that much anyway. And then in 1850, right after the, uh, the British had been in the Crimea, Crimean War, the recruiting manuals are absolutely, uh, you know, alarmist about enlisting someone underneath the age of, say, 22. You know, mm -hmm. the, the argument that they're making is the the physical, you know, the bodies of um, of young men are not their, their sinews haven't developed, their bones haven't fused together, their, you know, it's a very medical argument about the way bodies develop. And this is coming out of a tradition of, um, you know, scientific measurements, all of which, nearly all of which in the first half of the century are focusing on men in uniform. Um, and the studies like um, Quartelet, the um, Belgian, uh, you know, he, he invents the normal curve, the, the, the um, normal curve. And he's he's basically saying if, we, if we're looking at the, the evolution of the, the way the bodies develop, we have to pay close attention to age because, of course, you know, the way um, people age their their health is different or they're they're different at, at obviously at different ages so um these recruiting manuals start to say uh, in 1850 age is the most important factor in military health um and you know the other thing to note here is that um this is a the first half of the 19th century is of course uh you know people really trying to figure out how do you field an efficient army and they're very much focused on having men who are the same height and have the same stride. Uh, it's okay to have some little drummer boys at the front because you can stick them on a wagon if you need to, but men who are marching in formation, the quicker you can get them to be able to wheel, you know, or uh, 
make do a maneuver um they all have to be roughly you know similar physical phys- physically and you know everyone is claiming from the 50s onwards the 1850s onwards that young boys can't cut it um so you know if you look at what's happening in the prussian military or um other militaries in europe they're only um conscripting males above um I can't remember but it's it's above 20 the age of 20 so um i mean that's very interesting because because again we we think 18 is fine and i watched uh watched ecu basketball defeat tulsa last night the one last place team we can beat um but those young men are you know 19 years old and they're they're pretty physically mature they they can do uh, some amazing athletic things uh and to, to read in, in your research that, that here's the scientific evidence being presented that young men are not mature until they're over 20, 21 years old uh, and, and can't serve is, is very different from anything we see in the 20th century. Uh, sure, and I should be clear that we're not arguing that that is the case. No, 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 <laughs> but, but that, that people believed that in 1860, that the parents would make those arguments and support them with what they perceived as scientific evidence. It's just a fascinating uh, revelation. Uh, and there actually is some. There actually is some evidence. I should add that um, mm-hmm. puberty came later, so for mm-hmm. both boys and girls, um, it's it's a hard question to nail down. But mm-hmm. um, you know, it it is entirely possible that there's something to this argument, even on a scientific level. That. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of how people developed at the time. so Now, another thing you, you talk about in the book, and Rebecca, let me ask you this. Uh, uh, while soldiers are not being, or parents are not making the argument, send little Johnny home, he enlisted without my permission at age 16, uh, because it's he'll be traumatized, it's bad for his mental health. Uh, I was, you know, suitably horrified to read about the violence in books for children that was considered <laughs> appropriate at that time. Yeah, so are we. Um, uh, yes, I mean, the, the best example I think that, that we have in the book are the ABC books that mm-hmm. are obviously there for kids who are just learning how to read. They're for very young children and they have, you know, pretty gruesome images. You know, tea is for traitors, somebody being hung. <laughs> um, yeah, they have a, a battlefield with um, a body that is strewn on the ground with a hole in the head with blood coming out. Uh, these are images that would not be in your typical ABC book today. And yet they were there. And so that did not really jive with what we were imagining to be um, the sort of kind of Victorian era cult of the child, the emphasis on childhood innocence. So we really had to rethink that whole development of um you know, the the emergence of uh, the sentimental child in the 19th century and what that actually meant, um, because um, protection from violent images is not part of that, whereas, you know, protection from, an, uh, you know, sexual images is. Mm-hmm. So, you know, what is what is violence actually doing? And what we found was basically people thought it served pedagogical ends, um, that uh, 
certain ideas about how children's um, faculties develop and what they are able to um, learn and remember that using these very vivid tales that made deep impressions on the mind, that that was a really uh, um, effective way to teach the young. Um, so both sort of to teach them to remember things, but also in terms of um, moral and political lessons, they did not shy away from violence. You know, it, if you look at abolitionist literature for children, it's incredibly violent, for example. So You also point out that parents don't necessarily that, that parenting is just so different the example you give of uh, fred uh, fred grant son of uh, u.s yes julia grant uh 12 years old essentially being like like we won't send a kid to the corner store by themselves helicopter parents have to follow <laughs> everywhere and he's roaming the battlefields of the western theater yeah that was crazy um I know. I, I that was a, one of the accounts that really stuck with me. In, in part, not just because of what he's seeing. You know, he describes mm -hmm. himself as the most woebegone lad in America when he sits down. You know, during the Vicksburg campaign, and he's just he's you know seeing horrible things and is distraught. But what mm -hmm. shocked me even more than that was how sick he gets, how much weight he loses, how yeah. miserable he is. I mean, he he approaches death's door at least once, and it sounds mm -hmm. to me like more than once. And they keep sending him back. They keep sending him back to be with his dad. So, you know, they and, and there's, um, you know, Grant Pithy, as always, um, has a, a remark where he basically says that, you know, he knew that. It was um, at the age that he was experiencing the war, he would remember things, um, you know, more clearly than if it had been at a later stage and that that was a good thing. So that that's very different from the way we think today. Yeah, so putting those deep scars into impressionable minds uh, perceived, as you say, as a good thing. Uh, definitely very different. The... Um, The, the another image that comes up frequently is that uh, you, you talk about the drummer boy, the the youthful soldier. Uh, there's a lot of literature of of dead drummer boys in in northern wartime literature. That again, uh, uh, not something we would expect today. No, but um, there are you know there. The, the dying child is a distinct literary genre in the 19th century. You know, think Uncle Tom's Cabin or, mm -hmm. you know, all of the kind of, you know, the the, the child is, um, is a very potent 19th century symbol for, um, you know, allowing people to exhibit the appropriate emotions and, uh, you know, training them, I mean, you know, in the 19th century to feel... Uh, appropriate amounts of sympathy um, in the face of someone's distress is, uh, you know, that's something that you want to cultivate. So, um, yeah, the drummer boys were extremely popular, but we trace that those stories about dying drummer boys to the back to the kind of colonial era, um, even literature about dying children um, evoking people's um, closeness to God, like converting them, basically. It, it's it's a fascinating uh, it, it, 
just another insight in this book that, that shows how different uh, the world was. Sometimes we think, you know, if I just put on the right reenactment gear and go hang out, I'll feel like it's 1863. Uh, they saw the world so differently in so many ways. We're going to talk more about those ways in just a minute. We'll take another short break. We'll come back in a moment with Francis Clark and Rebecca Plant. They are the authors of Of Age, Boy Soldiers and Military Power in the Civil War Era. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Francis Clark and Rebecca Plant, authors of Of Age, Boy Soldiers and Military Power in the Civil War Era, uh, the book that talks about the, these young soldiers under the age of, of going without parental permission uh, or even going at all, below 16 in some cases, and the ramifications of this uh, stretch in all kinds of unexpected directions. You write about the Militia Draft Act of 1862. Most of us listening, you know, we've heard of it, allows... Uh, raising nine-month regiments, which we think of as militarily not that useful, uh, does allow the enlistment of African-American soldiers, which would be very useful for the federal government. But when we talked earlier about the distinction between militia service and federal regular army service, this seems to me, if I'm reading the book correctly, that the law that that crosses the line, that now all these young boys who have been allowed to serve in the local militia show up on the village green once a year, maybe defend the home if, if that's actually a threat. Uh, the Militia Draft Act allows those local units to be brought into federal service, and now little Johnny, who 
volunteered without dad's permission is suddenly on his way to the front uh, and can't be recalled by by the parents and and that's really the critical point uh, the parents are powerless to stop this was well, this really a turning point um well there's a couple of ways to to answer that one one would be to say that um the war department had actually stopped sending allowing um parents to reclaim their children their 18 to 21 year old boys um mm-hmm. in september 1861 basically they're getting dozens of requests to from parents mm-hmm. reclaim their young males basically because they're uh, there's a lot of hardship on the home front and you know boys are helping on farms and things so they want you know they're they're sending in these massive amounts of requests so the government september 1861 basically says we're not letting any more minors out it doesn't matter if they're 12 14 whatever no one's getting out um it doesn't matter how many affidavits you give us the courts are still letting people out on writs of, of habeas corpus but the government has put a stop to that but what the militia draft act of july 62 does First of all, it's pushed through very quickly. Uh, One-year enlistments are, are due to expire. Um, enlistment rates are plummeting. It gets pushed through in a week. And there are a few old-timers in Congress who understand what's going on here. It's really rewriting the nation's militia laws. It allows the president to call for an unlimited number of militiamen for mm-hmm. up to nine months, you know, before it's only been three months. All states were required to enrol um, all males, 18 to 45 at the president's request, so, you know, not at the governor's request anymore, um, really helps, it's really helping to massively expand the president's authority as commander-in-chief. It's converting what was basically a system that was supposed to prevent the centralisation of power into a fully federalised structure where state militias are basically under federal control. Their efforts geared to, you know, national defence. Under this new law, it's the president that makes all the rules and regulations relating to militiamen who, you know, and he organises them in line with the regulars. There's no separate justice system anymore where, you know, in the old, in the militia system in the past, it was your, you know, your local officer, a guy from your local area who, who dispensed mm-hmm. the justice. So, you know, I think people have missed this as, the, as, as a major turning point in the Civil War, I think, because... Most people, when they think of the militia, they they tend to think it's been moribund long before this point. And most people aren't enlisting from the militia into the Civil War. They're volunteering into regular units. But the the point we're making in the book is even, you know, yes, the militia service has become a bit of a joke by the 30s or 40s in many places, not out west, but in many places, Um, you know, but legally that distinction between service in the militia and service in the regulars was very seriously held in people's minds, in ordinary people's minds. And you see it most closely in these debates about underage, you know, boys under the under the age of 21, because it's parents who have the most to lose, essentially, um, you know, losing control of their young males. Now, you mentioned that they, they tried to regain that control by petitioning the government, writing directly to the president, secretary of war, uh, but they also go to the courts with a writ of habeas corpus, as if the, their son has been arrested or kidnapped, and they want the the, the body returned to them. The uh, and this was was another fascinating aspect of the book. Initially, they're going to state courts, and then you have state courts, state judges, acting on the writ and telling the federal army officers 
to release uh, the young soldier. Mm-hmm. So when Lincoln ends in a suspense habeas corpus in 1862, I've always associated primarily with political dissent, and most people I think have, but you argue here that it has just as much, if not more, to do with stopping parents from going to local state courts uh, to get their boys out of the army. Uh, yeah. Re- Rebecca, is, am I reading that correctly? You are reading that absolutely correctly. <laughs> that that was one of the things that was most surprising to us. We didn't, of course, imagine that habeas corpus would be a major component of the story when we first began this research. Mm-hmm. But um, in fact, um, you know, state and local courts had uh, the ability to exercise control over military forces within their areas. And again, this is about, it's very hard for us to conceive of um, a world that is less hierarchical. You know, now we think, oh, the Supreme Court makes the decisions that then trickle down or are imposed down. Whereas really at this point, you've got two very distinct systems where, you know, federal courts are dealing with the small number of issues related distinctly to the federal government, but the action is really with the state and local courts, um, which almost function as a kind of really governance, uh, local governance. And, um, so yeah, the, they, there was a long tradition of um, people being able to retrieve their um, runaway kids from the military by appealing for a writ um, at any, you could appeal for a writ at any level um, mm-hmm. of the judicial system. So uh, there was a reason why people, you know, talked about the great writ and held it in such high regard that it really was, um, it gave ordinary people uh, an extraordinary degree of, of power. And part of what we are tracing over time is um, how uh, state and local courts get stripped of that ability to meddle in um, federal institutions, <laughs> including the, the military. So that, and, it, and it's sort of like with the Militia Act, when this finally is all resolved, it's actually after the war with a, um, a case called Targle's case, mm-hmm. um, a, a Supreme Court case where they basically say, no, state courts do not have this power anymore um, to, uh, you know, discharge or compel um, people to appear who are being held in federal custody of any kind. Uh, but, But it's sort of some of these changes that are massive changes, they kind of fly under the radar in weird ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was that was very interesting to us. Yeah, that that really has you know flown under the historical radar that that habeas corpus being deployed primarily by parents and uh, and by taking that away, this again centralizes and federalizes uh, the force. I mean, today we think of uh, in the United States, you think of the militia, you think of the National Guard, uh, but it's not the state guard; it's the National Guard. Uh, mm-hmm. Its purpose is to guard the nation, not the local institution. It's it's organized on a state by state basis, but it's easily federalized. It, it's a very different world we live in. Um, 
There, I have uh, several hundred more pages of questions, but only time for one. <laughs> uh, quickly on the Confederacy, uh, why no, why no uh, uh, valorization of the Confederate drummer boy, the dying Confederate drummer boy? Uh, you point out those images don't show up the way they do in the North. No, they do by the late 19th century when yes, you know, militants were the thing. But, you know, the, the drummer boy, the, the Union side is really, or the US side is really taking its lead here from the French. And we we looked at all of the different places around the world where drummer boy, you know, where people had drummer boy statues and when they got erected and, you know, when people started creating poetry and artwork and stuff directed to drummer boys. And you'll see that it's all Republican systems of, of governance because that symbol of the child soldier is, you know, it evokes sort of freshness and purity and all the things attached to childhood. And, you know, we we uh, realise that the Confederacy is not interested in, you know, as a, um, you know, when they're trying to create their polity, they're not, um, you know, they're not valorising newness and you know innocence and those kind of qualities they're sort of superfluous to the confederate war effort so you know it's just not a symbol that appealed to their side no you have a a fascinating chapter also on uh, the vmi cadets and the the uh, very ambiguous position of, of young men in the Confederacy, uh, which I, I wish we had time to discuss in detail, but instead I will leave that as a, a teaser for the listeners uh, that you can find out by reading the book Of Age, Boy Soldiers and Military Power in the Civil War Era. Um, do the two of you have another project in the hopper? We are going back to the very first, um, when I first started looking at these um, adjutant general collections, a lot of it is about hardship during the war and families um, writing into the government to say, I need my husband home or I need someone home because of, you know, the supreme hardship. So Mm -hmm. we're taking a bunch of these letters and um, creating them as a teaching tool and it will be about women's um, civil war and sort of hardship on the home front. It's... um, yeah, that's a, it's a, a way small of teaching the, Yeah, it's a way of teaching the history of women in the Civil War in the North that doesn't focus on the usual suspects of nurses and sanitary commission workers. And, mm-hmm. you know, that looks really more at what the vast majority of women are going through. That sounds fascinating. I will say one of the things I really enjoyed about this book was uh, the, the chapter on, for example, militia and, and, and regular service in the early republic. Uh, I can cut that out, uh, the 20-page coverage. If you write a whole book on that, I can't use it. I can't assign the whole book in a class. But I can take those 20 pages for part of a weekly assignment, and you bet I will be using them next year when I teach Yay, American military that is, that is history. music to our ears that makes <laughs> our hearts sing because we well, wrote those chapters to be extracted for precisely those purposes. Well, well, I will be doing just that. And listeners, you will want to extract all the content, uh, again, by reading the book uh, Of Age, Boy Soldiers and Military Power in the Civil War Era. It is by our guests tonight, Francis M. Clark and Rebecca Joe Plant. Uh, uh, Francis and Rebecca, thank you both so much for being on the show tonight. Thank you. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio.
Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.